After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everybody. Mind Rolling Podcast is back with David Silver and Raghu Marcus and a special guest, Ian Lawton. And you guys are going to love this, uh, this story that Ian is bringing to us about the original uh, first white Irishman, white anybody, but from Ireland, who made it eventually to Burma and became the, or- the first ordained Buddhist monk. And uh, he uh, has a fantastic story, which he tells us, and uh, he's going to make a film about it. And he, it's, it's, it's very, very poignant, as you'll hear in the end. Uh, so we're quite happy to, uh, to share this with everybody, Dave. Oh, yeah, he's great. But we do want to quickly remind all of you that this is a... a a listener-supported podcast, and uh, we need... Uh, there are several ways in which you can support us. One is by listening to us and talking to people and being excited about it, of course, uh, but also by using our our association, our affiliation with Amazon and using our portal and bookmarking our Amazon portal. And whenever you have a desire to buy something, uh, which we all seem to be doing with Amazon these days, uh, remember us and do it through our portal because we get a, a small amount of it and it helps us tremendously. We also uh, have our own sales, T-shirts, etc., and that's going to grow exponentially. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's it. We're going to have a, a whole incredible array of T-shirts, not just for mind-rolling, but for the whole... Uh, MindPod Network, which we've been telling you about, which you have been coming and sharing because we are seeing uh, just pretty substantial numbers coming to the website because that website is beyond just uh, linking up and subscribing to iTunes to either Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Krishna Das, Mind Rolling, or Ram Das here and now. It also has really a, a, a beautiful array of different articles and uh, videos and audios of uh, both esoteric and uh, um, timely um, topics that uh, are really fun to dig into. So that's been happening, and, I th- and I'm glad it's uh, attracting everybody because it's certainly attractive to us because we share what it is that we love, and that's what this whole thing is about, the MindPod Network. 
So uh, appreciate that and appreciate um, the, uh, the feedback and the comments. And Dave does a lot of going back and forth with people and because he can write a decent letter, whereas uh, I can't say the same for myself. Uh, and, uh, but um, you know, the other thing, Dave, we always do, we always have a little bit of a recommendation um, and uh, for for the Amazon things, because that's where you know people you go on and on and on, and uh, you know we need to do this, everybody, and we know sometimes it's a little bit um, of a bore, and we figure that the best way to do it is actually recommend some good stuff. Uh, so actually, this particular book, go up and get it, the White Llama. It's Theos Bernard, T H E O S Bernard. It's an incredible book. Uh, which is a biography, travel, and adventure, a history of Tibet's opening to the West. And it's the White Lama, the life of tantric yogi, Theos Bernard, uh, Tibet's lost emissary to the West. So this is, uh, you, you would appreciate this. And um, Dave, have you heard about the, the, the lost, uh, the, the Dylan, they found some Dylan's yeah. lyrics and they got Jim James and Marcus Mumford and a bunch of people together. Elvis Costello. And Elvis, yeah. Uh, did you hear any of that? I've seen it. Uh, oh, he on, was on Showtime, yeah. Yeah, I've seen What's it. What's it called? Uh, I don't... It, well, Basement Tapes is in yeah, the title. Yeah, Basement Tapes. Yeah, The Lost Basement Tapes. I think it's, that's it's it. It's really quite beautifully shot, actually. And T-Bone Burnett is responsible for producing this. And he's just one of those people that is... Is just you know always excellent. Yeah, I mean quality, great. quality, quality. Check that out. But I got to tell you, there's one song, and I don't know the name of it, but Jim James, it is so uh, perfectly emblematic of Dylan in in those days, though, in, mm. in the early. He even sounds slightly like Dylan, but mm. the melody he came up with alongside of Dylan's words in this thing are just—it's worth the price of admission to this record. So everybody, uh, go up there and uh, get that up on Amazon. I have and... two, two recaps, which okay. is, uh, I've gone back to drinking the chai that... Uh, you Robert have? Is... Yes, I have. And it's um, it's cardamom chai uh, and uh, there's masala chai. Uh, it's available on Amazon. And for those of you, and I'm sure there's quite a few of you, who love chai uh, in the morning and at other times, this is the most authentic sort of instant yeah. version of it that, that, that you can find here and it's on Amazon I highly recommend it because uh, Raghu and um, many others uh, are very picky about this because you've, once you've had the real stuff what they call chai in, in, in um, Starbucks and so forth is a pale imitation and actually it's annoying to me I usually get <laughs> kind of pissed off when I drink it because it doesn't taste anything like the real thing this isn't you know totally authentic but you can make it so by adding little milk and a little um, breakfast tea is terrific. English like breakfast. Dry. Irish. Irish breakfast. Irish breakfast, breakfast yeah, right. Absolutely. And, uh, it's called Nature's Guru, folks. So, uh, And uh, they should they should sponsor us so we wouldn't have to harangue you all. Really? I should. actually got Nature's in touch Guru. with them, and, and they said, what do you want? And I told them, and I never heard another word from them. Yeah. And we have a we substantial art, uh, audience here. Yeah, we're pushing their chime. Nothing comes back. Yeah, that's, so, but we like it, so that's screw it. Love, right? That's yeah, a, unconditional love for... The other thing I wanted to recommend was some years ago, many years ago, 20 years ago, I did some work with Mickey Hart, who is uh, was the second drummer for Grateful Dead and is still 
performing with the sort of collective that is now the other and will be the Grateful Dead for a night or two soon. And uh, Mickey produced an album called the um, Tantric Choir, which is the Giotto Monks. And um, it's just so marvelous. I listened to it last night for probably the 150th time. God knows why. Uh, try and get it. It's, it's just terrific. It's on Amazon. And Mickey did something no one else had ever done that f thus far, which was to record this multi-tonal Tibetan chanting and playing uh, in perfect stereo and surround sound. And it just grabs you on headsets. You, you're put into a different world and a better one. So I recommend that record very much. Record, is that a word that people use anymore? That's uh, for old dudes like uh, still <laughs> like a download unit although download. vinyl is like way back i mean vinyl is a happening thing you know yeah. there's more there's an increase in the sales of vinyl over uh, any other format of course it's still only a couple does of amazon percent. sell vinyl yeah absolutely absolutely okay. yes all right well that's that's our harangue can we i just love uh, mr Cockney, uh, if we could, could you have him just say? Oh well, let me let me just get him. <laughs> could you call him over here for a second? All right, and well, those of you who are tired of Russell Brand and all of that sort of communist stuff he's spouting, <laughs> uh, you know, just keep mind rolling because I don't know. I haven't met these guys. I never met them because you know they're never in London, but. I hear they're very nice guys, a little cranky sometimes, but then that's typical of, you know, their era. <laughs> so uh, knuckle down, make a donation, and and be high-spirited about the whole thing because they're high most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here we go with uh, Ian Lawton and uh, the Dharma Bum. Another sunny day in paradise with mind rollers. And today is a special day because we get to talk to somebody uh, from over the pond, as they say, Ian Lawton. And Ian is from Ireland, one of my favorite places in the world. Absolutely love it. Actually, David and I uh, went over to Ireland a couple of times and uh, worked on some music stuff when we were uh, in the record business. Remember that, Dave? I loved it. We were in Dublin and uh, and on the outskirts of Dublin, uh, with two amazing people, actually, uh, Emer Kenny, uh, a singer, a terrific singer, and her husband John, and they were so gracious. But it, I'd never been, you know, I'm from England, but I'd never been to Ireland, and just that small time there was 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 just great. It was just full of, I don't know, precious moments. Zest so like, uh, for life yeah. is is that right? That's the way we would say it. So hi, Ian. How are you doing, guys? Pleasure to be here. And a great pleasure to have you. Tell us where you are in Ireland, by the way. I'm in, I'm in, a, in County Meath in the Midlands of Ireland. And it's, uh, the sun is set and the snow is falling. Mm. And uh, enjoying a, a nice-looking evening out there. Ah, beautiful, beautiful. So, uh, actually, let's tell everybody the, a little bit about the circumstances about how we met would be would sure. be great you uh first of all you why how did you even find ramdas and uh, that's obviously how we met right was it through ramdas or is it through mind rolling i can't remember it was it was through mind rolling oh really um yeah i um, 
I was, um, well, I'm currently um, working on a, a film right now and uh, I've been doing a, a lot of sort of PR and press and reaching out to, to the, big, the wider community and, uh, and I, out of the blue one day I got an email from yourself, Raghu, um, uh, and you wished to talk to me about the film I'm making. Mm. And we had a we had a quick chat in December, and you decided we should have this podcast. So I'm delighted to be here to talk about the film because I think it's, uh, it's certainly a story I, I I'm dying to tell and let the world know about. And particularly the fact that I'm I'm crowdfunding it. Um, this is this is going to be great exposure mm. to to the U, to the United States and. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just delighted to be here talking about it. Well, it's a subject close to our hearts, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, primarily spreading Dharma, sharing, which is mm-hmm. what this podcast is all about. So, uh, you know, we're absolutely thrilled to have you on to, to talk Thanks, about yeah. it and uh, tell the story and so on. Uh, but just a little bit about you personally, though. Okay. Just coming up, uh, you know, as a young man in... In Ireland and getting, I mean, how do you even get interested in uh, Buddhist thought and so on and so forth? How did I get interested in Buddhist thought? Yeah, just uh, what are um, there, you know, we always ask, we always have guests on. Sure, uh, sure. One of the no, first I, things I, we I'm do is, is is just say, tell us what the transformative experiences that you've had that uh, led you to uh, any sort of a path. And uh, okay. so, yeah, go ahead. Let us know. Sure. Well, well, okay. Well, go, going way back um, to to my childhood, I guess um, I was a big fan of the Beach Boys and the Beatles and their music. And um, you know, I had I had older uncles, and my father was a big. He'd always play the Beach Boys in 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 the car and stuff, and that kind of introduced me to um, to transcendental meditation. Um, there was a lot of talk about that, particularly when the, the George Harrison and, mm. and Lennon went off uh, to meet with the Maharaji and stuff like that. And I found all that very, very fascinating. But I was just a child. I didn't, you know, it didn't really, it, just, it was just entering my head, basically. Um, I was becoming aware of it and were aware of something special somewhere. And um, so... In my 20s, I discovered there was a sort of a transcendental meditation place near where I lived. But um, I was kind of dubious about it because they charged a hell of a lot of money to to learn how to do this. And I thought, um, you know, I, I could never afford to do it. <laughs> so so um, let's see. The, the, the path I'm on right now kind of happened when when I quit alcohol. I quit drinking. Hmm. And and not I easy in Ireland, eh? <laughs> not easy in Ireland, no. But um, I, I, when I, I, to be honest, when I quit alcohol after a few months, I felt alive, and I felt that I'd spent my life as a as a drinker dead. And hmm. I, I felt like I opened my uh, opened my mind more. Um, and I, any time I had tried to do any kind of mindfulness vipassana meditation. As a drinker, it never stuck. I never had the patience for it. I never, you know, it never really, I never really benefited from it. Um, but once my kind of mind relaxed and I got detoxed, I guess, from years and years of, of drinking alcohol, um, I really took to meditation. And the first time I did it as a non-drinker, 
um, made me decide and make the commitment to to do it every day. Hmm. Um, and of course, I've kind of a, I've a very kind of scientific mind, so hmm. I always try to find out the the source of these things and and sort sort of work my way back. And um, and it brought me back to Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, and what he did under the the Bodhi tree, and 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 I, I thought, my God, have I, have I accidentally become a Buddhist? Because, <laughs> uh, but um, it's been it's been I've been on retreats since then, and I've learned more how to, in you know. Um, just practice the, the Vipassana on a daily basis, sometimes twice a day if I can. And I've been doing that for a couple of years now. Mm. And uh, I, I don't think I have any kind of right to call myself a Buddhist, but I certainly practice Buddhism. Um, I know that the important things are the sort of the, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Where I live, there is no Sangha. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a, what I'm kind of, I guess what I'm doing and where I'm living in the middle of Catholic Ireland, there's 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 no sangha. So, until I find the opportunity to join a sangha, I don't think I could have any claim to call myself a Buddhist. Well, I'm not sure about that. But there's a funny. <laughs> just this comes to my mind because David and I have been working on something with mm-hmm. uh, Ramdas and Sharon Salzberg. It's a, a retreat that uh, was in uh, Maui last year that we're. David's been editing into a, a, a beautiful program. Uh, Dave, tell that story, because you just uh, told me no. you just inserted that great thing about Buddha yeah, and the Buddha. Someone wrote to Ramdas and, and had had some problems with his parents because he, he'd sort of become interested in, in the Buddha. And mm-hmm. uh, what was said, which was kind of um, redemptive, was, uh, you know, don't be a Buddhist, but be a Buddha. And you know that isn't just sophistry. I don't think it, it. It really does sort of say what we're all three of us here are sort of involved with. I think, which is that you know I don't, I haven't taken refuge as such, you know, and all of that. And um, I do go to an occasional Buddhist meditation and so forth. But I get it myself um, from reading. All Buddhism is just full of the most amazing literature and books. It is, yeah. Right from the original sutras through to all the tulkus and lamas and rinpoches and then Western commentators that have written just brilliant books that appeal. I'm an avid reader, you know, and mm-hmm. I just find it incredibly um, helpful. I mean, that's just the most simple word. It helps me get through my day every day. Mm-hmm. And there are other disciplines that Raghu is involved with and I'm involved with, but I keep coming back to Buddhist thought, even though the word thought is a little unfashionable in spiritual circles, you know, let's not be intellectual, let's be spiritual, but it is thought, it's, it's matter about the mind. And um, I would imagine, um, Ian, that sort of a similar thing applies to the situation that you're in, uh, in Ireland, surrounded by papists. <laughs> uh, well, what I what I what I love about Buddhism is its simplicity, and the the sort of the difficult part, I guess, is putting it into practice. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's that's what I find challenging about it, because it's kind of it's you know I'm I'm the type of person who doesn't suffer fools gladly, so it's always very very kind of challenging to find the compassion, and. You know, but it's like I said, it's a, it like you know, as you know, it's a practice, and if unless you do it every day, and 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 I make a point of of practicing metta um, at least once a week, 
that was something I learned on retreat. And I think it was, it was Nietzsche who pointed out that Buddhism can become very narcissistic. And mm. I kind of was beginning to feel that kind of being very detached. And until I learned the benefit of uh, metta meditation, um, I, I, to be honest, I was, I'm a very skeptical person. I've been atheist all my life. Um, so anything that is is sort of kind of prairie i kind of shy away from you know what i mean so uh, until i actually started physically practicing meta i it blew my, it blew my mind it absolutely mm. blew my mind the benefit of that and i really make sure to 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 make to p- include that in part of my practice at mm. least once a week because it's 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 it really improves how 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 you how you how you are really i think mm. Uh, you know, it's very interesting because we were led uh, in the early days when we were in India uh, with our guru, Neem Karoli Baba. We were led, he didn't teach anything, so he didn't say go learn Vipassana or anything, but we found ourselves in the beginning, a few of us, uh, including Ramdas, in Bodh Gaya and starting to do these uh, uh, Vipassana courses. And then many of us, in fact, most of us. Uh, who were there at that time, really uh, were introduced to Vipassana meditation. So it was some formative uh, instruction for us that was extremely important. And in fact, the people that we were close to at that time have become some of the great uh, Buddhist uh, teachers in this country. Uh, And uh, Jack Kornfield and uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg are three very, very close people to our family. And it's it's interesting because it 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 combined with it, what you're saying and what you're experiencing right now is yeah. exactly what we experienced back then, or what we experience right now as well. But what we first mm-hmm. bumped into back then was getting this kind of backbone uh, meditative uh, practice combined with the bhakti path, and you could say uh, metta is not something one would call the bhakti path, but it certainly is developing love and opening your heart uh, to expand into eventually, you know, all those around you and so on and so forth. And uh, we, we spend a lot of time with metta practice because Sharon uh, does participate in these retreats. I don't know if you've seen any of the stuff we have on ramdas.org, but you can see her teaching uh, metta, and uh, that, that's become an important uh, part of these retreats. So that combination of, of, uh, of this very, very solid practice, and I don't know, maybe Ian, you and I have talked about this uh, when we first talked about, uh, but I don't quite remember that you were this um, involved with Vipassana, and, and it, it is also something really close to my heart, and it's also something I do day to day. And the combination of the two, I think, is uh, super, super important because it can be very Absolutely. easy in Buddhism because Bo- especially for me, the Tibetans, they are so crystal clear about uh, the nature of reality and how this all works. It's very enticing, and you can, you know, and I'm, we're going to get some mail, Dave, around this from the Buddhists, but it would seem to be to me, and uh, I have myself been caught in, in this, this kind of crystal clarity of feeling like 
oh yeah, like yeah, okay, I know this. And of course, there's no knowing in the mind of anything when it comes to the reality of nature. Uh, so uh, the the uh, combination of of the heart practice alongside of this, and this is something Dave and I talk about and my mind rolling uh, podcast from quite often and quite regularly is the marriage of these two things seems to be something quite important to to become uh, an evolved human being where you yes. are not as you say it's the possibilities of narcissism seem to be grand uh, along this path or any path but in particular because of the clarity of the path uh, that uh, the inclusion of meta practice in this case is—it's uh, a great point and something great to share with with everybody out there. So yeah, it's essential, I think. Yeah. So next thing that happens in life, your life, is that you bump into a story about a monk, and, and so I think we want you to uh, just relate. You know, how did that happen? How did you bump into this story of this monk and and uh, uh, regale us with this story? Sure. Um, well, like I was saying earlier, I'm 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 in a small town in the Midlands of Ireland, and uh, I think one evening I was I was just searching for any information about Buddhism in Ireland, and uh, just to. to because it seems to be in small little pockets here and there, mostly in bigger cities in Dublin, which is where I'm from. I'm 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 only out of Dublin uh, four years, um, but it was it was yeah. So I was just doing some research just for my own for my own benefit, and uh, I think the Google search was Ireland Buddhism, something like that, mm. which led me to um, an article on the BBC website and um on on history and religion and the headline said something like uh the lost irish monk udamaloka and uh, i just began began reading the article um out of curiosity and my hair started to stand on end uh reading about this man um i started to see his life in front of me. It was just, it was, it, igni it ignited something in me, this, this story. And uh, before I even finished the article, I had opened up my email window and had started composing uh, an email to one of the re head researchers, uh, Brian. Um, I didn't know what I had discovered. I didn't know. All I knew was that this story shouldn't, I shouldn't be hidden away. I thought, why am I, you know, 40 odd years of age and only finding out about this guy now? This should be this guy should be a household name. He should be up there with Oscar Wilde or Michael Collins or any other mm. sort of staple of Irish history. But the fact is, is that he was erased from his not just Irish history but all history, um, and was only discovered um, in two thousand and nine. And the first evidence uh, compiled evidence, the interdisciplinary journal that the three researchers uh, composed, was. Um, released in an issue of contemporary buddhism in november 2010 so he's 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 still obscure and i i want to do something about that mm. by making this movie mm. so well, tell us a little about who he is and when he was and where he was okay well he was um he was born um he was born lawrence carroll in the year 1856 in a small town called Booterstown in the county of Dublin. Um, he was the son of the local greengrocer, 
and uh, his house was he was actually born right next door to the local Catholic church. <laughs> I'm just listening to your dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So he was born right next door to the local Catholic church. Um, I, I don't know if that was any kind of alarm bells for future uh, activity, but uh, it's just a fact to bear in mind. Um, also, at this point as well, um, the, Ireland was 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 a colony of of Britain. It was part of uh, the colonialist colonialist rule. Um, I just want to preface this, uh, um, David. I know you're of English descent, so um, I am not anti-British or not anti-English. I'm just going to tell the facts as they are because I'm going to say quite a lot of negative things about British colonies uh, from Ireland all the way down to Southeast Asia. So apologies in advance. <laughs> we'll it's give right. you a chance. The, I'm sure I have the same critique, actually. Oh, no, I thought we'd give you a chance for a, uh, a reply on behalf of the... Uh, the monarchy, okay? No, you're getting on. Yeah. <laughs> Go on in. Okay, so he was he was in Buddhistown, which is very near Dunleary, which is a port a port town in in Dublin. Um, he made his way over to Liverpool, where he was working on the docks, roughly around 17, 18 years of age. Um, I don't know if it was, whether it was in in Ireland where he got a taste for the bottle, or over working with English uh, the Liverpool dockers where he got a taste for the bottle, but he became an alcoholic very quickly. Um, being the son of a greengrocer, he managed to get a uh, a job on the ship's pantry. He, he didn't really get any jobs as a docker, but on a ship's pantry, he went from Liverpool all the way to New York City and took the big journey mm. and ended up in, in the New World. Um, we're talking now 1860s, thereabouts. So... Um, so there's there's a roughly 26 years of his life that was spent in the United States that really, um, we don't know what went on, but we do know that he did travel as a hobo, um, you know, living hand to mouth, basically being a, being a bum and um, working his way bit by, bit by bit as a hobo, jumping trains, getting making his way across the USA, um, again, using his, his sort of, knowledge of the shipping he worked the the fruit ships going up and down the sacramento river um he ended up then in san francisco where he worked the shipping route to japan and uh, the story goes that on the third trip returning from japan he was kicked off the boat and left on the beach because he was too drunk to work he was drunk and disorderly they got rid of him and left him on the beach in japan and sailed off back to san francisco leaving him there you know, drunk and hungover and homeless on the on the beach in Japan. Um, Ian, so, where, let me just ask: yeah. where where are they getting any of these facts around his life? Just you know, just like going up and down the Sacramento River, going on the boat. Where are they? Do, do they say where they're finding this stuff? It's interesting. There's a lot of a lot of stuff is 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 accounted for um, uh, by by Lawrence's own word by first-hand meetings that he, where he met people on his travels and they wrote about him. And there might be a couple of pages here and a couple of pages there in different publications. And these guys, the three professors who I really, really want to talk about, they've put together, you know, like detective work to put together the, the, this man's life story. Mm. But just these little needles and haystacks of publications all around. And the thing was, he was traveling at a time where there was no passports. He was changing his name left, right and center. 
there's, you know, he was born Lawrence Carroll, but he also went by the name Larry O'Rourke. Uh, William Colvin was another one of his names. Then there's Udamaloka, obviously his his ordained name. But we'll get to that anyway. But he, he, the thing is, he was left on the beach uh, in, in Japan. He made his way down through China, all the way down through Southeast Asia, um, working as a tally clerk, things like that. But basically beachcombing, um, just, you know, being a bum. Um, ended up in Burma. And uh, the story goes that he was he was taken in by local Buddhist monks and dried out, um, and obviously this had a profound effect on on Larry. And um, after five years studying as a novice, um, in I think it was June of the year nineteen hundred, he was ordained as a full blown Buddhist monk and was the first white man to do so which is mm. quite a discovery you know he this guy predates uh many of the 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 monks who were who are you know generally known to have been the first buddhist monks like uh, alan bennett uh from england um was was one of the ones and i think it's 20 years prior to this that this this guy was was first ordained but that's just the beginning of the story really because um because it's not just the fact that he became a monk, it's what he did as a monk that makes him, you know, gives him this legendary status, really. Um, whereas other monks at the time would, you know, disappear into a monastery and just meditate. And this guy was, he was an activist, pretty much an anarchist. He he obviously came from Ireland, uh, who was under British colonialist rule. Um, at the time, Burma uh, was about 10, maybe 15 years uh, of uh, currently of being in the process of, of colonization by the British, they were sending in um, missionaries, sending in colonists, and he was vehemently opposed to the Bible, the bottle, and the Gatling gun. They were his his main points of, of, you know. So where where to next? Um, I mean, there's 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 plenty of stories I can tell you of what he did to as as a monk. Um, um, I think the first uh, this was nineteen. It was 1900 he was ordained, and I think in 1901 he published an advert in the local Burmese newspaper, um, proclaiming himself, proclaiming himself the Bishop of Angoon. He was, you know, <laughs> he had an audacity about him. He proclaimed himself the Bishop of Angoon and forbade the British to be <laughs> to 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 um, to distribute any Christian literature or any anything related to the Bible, to, to the local people, and forbade it. Uh, said, this, I command you not to do this. So he was really a fly in the ointment of, of the invading British. Um, where to go next? Um, so he... he I, I, can I read something to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Something to, there, yeah. There's, um, this is... Um, I'll just show it up to the camera. Obviously, nobody who's listening can see this. This is a copy Buddhism. of Contemporary Buddhism, which is the interdisciplinary journal that um, was was written and released in, in November 2010 by um, the three, written by the three professors who, who I'll actually, will I tell you a little bit about them before I read this? Sure. Hmm. Okay, their, their names are Alicia Turner, Lawrence Cox and Brian Bocking. Um, a little story about them is that Lawrence Cox, he's a professor here in, um, in Maynooth, the Irish College in Maynooth, um, University of Ireland, I should say. And, um, 
he was doing some research. He's a sociology professor. He he was he was writing a book called Buddhism in Ireland, and um, I think he found a newspaper clipping from the Irish Independent, uh, dated I think um, early nineteen hundreds, talking about the Irish pongi. Um, when he read it, he thought it was made up. He thought it was pure fiction, and. Pardon me. Um, because of the list of jobs that this man had, um, as you know, Tally Clark, um, Beachcomber, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so he did a little bit of research and and found actual physical evidence of the man's existence. So this confirmed that he was indeed a real, actual person. Um, um, as as a monk, he he started up a, a tract society. Tracts are like uh, circulars, like newsletters, mm. like fanzines that he, were distributed to the people for free. Um, he he um, formed one called the Buddhist Tract Society uh, very early uh, after his ordination. And uh, an envelope was found addressed to an address in Canada. So it was physical evidence I've actually seen and held the envelope it's uh mm. you know it's actual physical evidence that the the Buddhist tract society existed so this man existed etc um so yeah these these three people uh, I think it was Alicia Turner who's in York University in Toronto um she had found another evidence of 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 a happening some in, in the United States and then Brian Bocking a professor of religions in University College Cork in Southern Ireland, realized that the two, these two, quite independently of each other, were talking, had made these discoveries and realized that they were talking about the same person. And uh, he put them together. And since then, the three of them have, have been working exclusively almost uh, in trying to push, put this man's life together um, and finding all these little needles in haystacks all over the place. Um, so I've I've kind of jumped around a little bit there now. <laughs> What's their commitment? Uh, I mean, their commitment to this is pretty strong because they've really researched this. Sure. Where are they they're, coming from? What's their end game? They're yeah. they're publi- they're publishing a book on the life of Damaloka. Oh, they are. They're, yeah, they're they're currently working on that, and it should be out sometime later in on this year. I I think. Um, so my 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 film that I'm I'm going to be making will be. Um, in-depth interviews uh, with these three, with these three people, and also um, in-depth interviews with their assistants and whoever else I can I can talk to um, in that regard. Um, where to go next? Well, let, let's hear. So, Seti, and I, that which I found very interesting actually was that sure. you're going to do animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film, which I've always thought was a, a clear good way for for documentaries to spruce themselves up a little bit, because, you know, documentaries yeah. are great, but we have so many of them in our lives now that there's too many talking heads. It can be a bit of a drone. Exactly. But exactly. if you can actually recreate the life, obviously there's no film or even photographs. None, none. And that's, so that's that the impetus be... behind the the animation for sure, yeah. because there's only one one photograph of the man that in existence. There's no, no footage of him whatsoever. Um, so animation really is. Inst- I don't want to. I don't want to stage reenactments with, no. with actors and. and yeah. ca- I think think this would be a more, you know, beautiful and respectful way, to bring the man back to life as as an animated character. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I I'm I'm a former animator. I started my career as an animator, and and two D traditional two D hand drawn animation is a dying art. So I really want to. 
I really want to make something of worth that includes some beautiful hand-drawn mm. animation also. And I think this this project really lends lends itself to that mm. uh, because of its epic scope, because of the, the amount of story that needs to be told and certain certain um, certain uh, stories and aspects of his life I really want to to recreate in animation. Um, I mean, it's a beautiful way of telling a story. I mean, I, I, if anyone had seen the, the Cosmos show with Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. that was a really beautiful way of uh, a really good device in, in storytelling device. And it, it kept you really engaged, I think. Mm. It's, it's a really great way of storytelling. Um, some stories. Give us some stories, his stories. Sure, Because I sure, remember yeah. being um, transfixed when you told me them. That would be amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, well, actually, I'll read that paragraph oh, that yeah. I, was, I was going to read. Um, let me just find this. This is one of, like, I had fallen in love with this character. And uh, it was when I found this paragraph, pardon me, I'm flicking through pages right now. When I found this particular paragraph, it just really concreted in my mind that I had made the right decision into in making this film. My apologies now. Can you bear with me just for one more second? Mm. I should have bookmarked it properly. No problem. Here we go. Now, this was published in 1900. Um in in the Burmese newspaper, and the, you know this. I'll I'll just read it because this is the words of Damaloka right now that you're going to be hearing. It's called "Warning to Buddhists." Buddhists of Burma, be warned in good time. Do your duty. The Christian belief is slowly making way. It has Europe, a strong, powerful. Or it has in Europe a strong and powerful organization. It is backed up by gigantic hordes of money. It works secretly and stealthily. It appeals forcibly to the self-interest and cupidity of men. One missionary society in South India has spent during the last year on average 10,000 rupees for every single convert. No wonder that it has been able to make 1,000 converts. Buddhists laugh and sneer when they are told that Christianity is progressing. If, when Christian missionaries are prepared to spend annually at the rate of 10,000 rupees for every single convert, they can only make... 1,000 converts. How, they ask, can there be any danger, near or remote, to our religion and society? But this is so underrated. The punicury strength of our adversary. Christian missionary societies are so enormously rich that they can afford to spend a good deal more. Therein lies our danger. Christianity as a system of religion is sorry stuff. Unbelief is steadily gr gaining ground in Europe. Look at the lawlessness in the Church of England at the present time. No wonder. The other day, three Christian bishops came together at Manchester and openly confessed how the advance of science it was making it impossible to continue to believe in many of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. As science advances, belief in Christianity is fading in Europe. Christianity spreads in this country not because it has any intrinsic worth, for science has shown it has none, but because its missionaries are backed up by the power of the purse. Of our own great religion, a European scientist has said, Buddhism is perfectly compatible with science. Christianity is diametrically opposed to it. Science, though made... It science, though, has made its way in spite of Christianity, and it is by... And it, and it is by means of scientific thought that Christianity is ultimately destined to perish. <laughs> it is perishing in Europe, but money makes it thrive there. 
while our own scientific gospel, Buddhism, is daily being robbed of its votaries. Buddhists of Burma reflect well on our dangers. Can you see sacrilegious hands deface or destroy our holy inheritance? The star-like Buddhas are calling upon you to proclaim from the housetop and hillside, from meadow to valley, the sacred gospel which we have entrusted to you. Will you show yourselves worthy of the trust? We have slept long enough. Shall we not at least, with great and grave danger looming before us, in all its huge and hideous proportions, shake off our lethargy? Buddhists of Burma, rise then and gird up your loins for the coming struggle. May the blessed Lord Buddha guide your efforts, prosper them, and crown them with, re- and crown them with reward. Wow. Jeez, if that was put out now, it would be uh, a problem. <laughs> it could have been written last week. Nobody really girds up their loins anymore, but yeah. certainly <laughs> that could have been written last week. Really? I mean, that's a serious call to arms right there. Yeah, yeah. So he was, he was not only became a Buddhist, but understood that, um, the, you know, I mean, from the time of the Inquisition onwards, that uh, mm-hmm. Christianity was an aggression, an aggression in some ways. And uh, even though we, I don't want to sound like a Pollyannish idiot here, but obviously Christianity as, you know, spread throughout imperialism, colonialism, is not what uh, the, the Nazarene was really talking about ever. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, his, his, you know, complete, complete denunciation of the Christian church in Europe is a political statement about the politicization of a, of a, of a, of a path. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's, but what's so interesting is that he was doing it in Burma, uh, uh, you know, and the British were a there. A hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised they didn't grab him and put him in a jail somewhere in, in uh, you know, Manchester. <laughs> well, he was, he was arrested. He uh-huh. was arrested a number of times. He was on trial for sedition. He did he did many many things uh, in in his sort of his one man reign of terror, if you like, against the, the British British colonialists for a period of uh, of ten years up until around 1911, where where sort of evidence of his existence kind of dissipates. There, he also faked his own death as well, which is probably as a result of, of the police surveillance he was under while he traveled through Sri Lanka and Ceylon and Australia. Um, he just, he just, I, he, I think he, he ended up faking his own death because of the constant police surveillance he was under because of the, the threat he posed. I mean, there's rumors that he, he ended up uh, being a Catholic priest, which I think is absolute rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds but, unlikely uh, to me, you know, based on that tract you just read. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's hilarious to think that he would end up in, in that, in that position. But, um, but what the, the, when he was first arrested was, was, uh, what I call shoegate. And, uh, this was a, a situation in, in, uh, in the Schwedagon Pagoda in, 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 in Rangoon, hmm. um, which is now called, uh, Yangon in, in Burma. Um, the Schwedagon Pagoda is a temple, a sacred ground. It's, it's said to contain like three or four hairs of, of Siddhartha Gautama in, in the temple. So obviously no shoes are allowed in, in this, in this sacred ground, um, and there was one instance where, um, sorry, there was there's it, it, the the police there were immune from this uh, this law. Um, they could wear shoes there while on duty, but he confronted an off duty police officer wearing his shoes, and 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 stood up to him and insisted that he he remove his shoes uh, while there. 
um, the the police officer saying, I'm, I'm a police officer, I can't do it. No, you're off duty, so you're not a police officer right now. Get the shoes off. Um, and he was arrested for that. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of, I'm probably not selling that very well, but there's a lot of admirable things like that, that he he took it upon himself as as he wouldn't sit down and let it let it happen he he had righteous indignation you know he really stood up for for what he believed in and and i really admire him for doing things like that hmm. absolutely activist buddhism is something that's an unknown quantity for mm. most he's certainly an engaged buddhist if ever there was one yes yes mm. did he speak the language Fluently. um well there's 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 I, I do know when he did, went on preaching tours that he did speak in English with an interpreter. That was probably easier for him. But there was there's this amazing book uh, called the uh, the vagabond Va the vagabond adventures around the world, which was written by an American man called um, Henry Frank, who on his travels around the world bumped into Damaloka on at the height of his sort of popularity. He um, he was uh, he was on a train in northern India, and uh, a lot of a lot of information comes from this first-hand account, where he sat with him um, and shared curry out of his alms bowl on on a steamer ship um, going down the river Ganges, where while on that ship he witnessed a a, a Hindi handing out um, uh, Christian literature. And of course, Damaloka took the thing, handed it back, and there's this wonderful confrontation between the two of them where they debated, and a lot of people who were on board gathered round to witness this uh, debate of this this white monk, because he was a real celebrity, because obviously there wasn't many white people out there wearing the saffron robes of, of a Buddhist monk. So um, he, he got a lot of attention uh, as a result. Um, so there was this amazing exchange uh, between these two. I mean, there's only nine pages, nine or ten pages, where he meets Damaloka in this book. But um, and and he's he the the writer Henry Frank, he writes it in in the similar way that uh, that Irvin Welsh would write Scottish. He would write it phonetically. Mm. So um, so you can when you read it, you really hear the sort of the Irish accent and and this yeah. vernacular. It's beautiful. Um, Da Buddha, you know, <laughs> he would say. Um, so, so there was this brilliant exchange where he's, he's, you know, handing back the literature to to the Christian uh, Hindi, and they have this debate, and the the Hindi was losing the debate and started insisting he didn't speak English anymore and started speaking in Hindi, mm -hmm. and then that's when Damaloka just started speaking fluent Hindi to him uh, to continue on the debate, uh, much to the enjoyment of the. The, the crowd that was had assembled, so there's there's wonderful things like uh, like that that really show off the the power of his personality, mm. and the kind of the celebrity status that he had. I mean, when he went on preaching tours, uh, he would almost deliberately um, pick um, towns where where the British missionaries were um, to sort of steal them of their audience, if you like, um, because he would he would, and this probably was one of the reasons why he was tried for sedition, whereas he would steal the audience, he would gather people and get them all riled up. Uh, you know, he was just very, very outspoken and a very good public speaker and very, you know, popular. And, and the cool thing is, um, in, in, in sort of crowdfunding this, camp, this film, um, I have a Facebook page, uh, which is numbered roughly around 300 likes at the minute, and over 90% of those likes are all 
from Myanmar. Really? So that hmm. is, I find that fascinating to, to think that this man is still known as popular in the country that, that became his home. Wow. As, as he was then, you know. Oh, that's amazing. What, what did, is there any record of what kind of talks that he gave, his teachings? Or are, are they around? Uh, I mean, because we're, what we're hearing is obviously activism, Buddhist activism and, uh, and really uh, contrariness towards the British Empire and everything they represent, which would have been natural for any Irishman of that era or any yeah. era. Uh, <laughs> but uh, is, is there, was there another component to what he represented as a monk? Um, I think, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I, I don't know. Like when I was speaking to you in December, I did say that there's a lot of aspects of, of this story where I keep trying to deliberately keep myself ignorant because of the, the interviews, mm. the in-depth interviews I want to conduct with the three professors. Um, so, so I might be a little vague in, in, in some of those, in the, in those answers. I, I'm sure there probably is record of his, of, of his preaching. Um, but I do know that... Um, in his publications for the Buddhist Tract Society, he would um, he would he would write about himself in the third person a lot, um, signing his name Captain Captain Daylight, and uh, Captain who? Captain Daylight. Daylight. Captain Daylight. It was one of his pseudonyms. <laughs> it was his pen name um, when he would write about the that. exploits and the adventures of Damaloka. <laughs> you know, he had some he had some neck. The 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 origin of that is is. Going back to his days in Ireland, um, during the, the British rule of Ireland, there was a sort of a Fenian band of rebels who would um, write letters to landlords when saying they would refuse to pay rent for people that were going to kick out. Um, they were called the Bukalibana in Gaelic, which translated as the white boys. And they would sign their, uh, they would sign their um, the letters to landlords, British landlords, um, Captain, Captain Moonlight. So... Mm -hmm. It was a play. It was a play on that, an homage, I guess, to those guys. So he was very much influenced by, by sort of activists and rebels and people like that. Um, I'm sure going because he was such a good organizer. There's talk of 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 his time in the in the U.S. He must have been part of many kind of Woody Guthrie style trade unions, etc., where they're you know sticking up for for their cause and their beliefs. Um, so I think he, he definitely did get an education while in the States that sort of fueled his, his, his you know, he wasn't just a, a crazy ex-alcoholic Irishman. He also had the ability to, uh, to organize and publish and get tracts out there. He, I mean, he'd re republish um, the works of the likes of Thomas Paine and, you know, atheist authors like that and free thinkers. He was very much into, you know, you do not want to be bogged down by these, these the, by dogma. You need really need to think for yourselves and open mm. your minds, and you know he really fought for that cause. Amazing, amazing! Mm. It is. It's so compelling. This. I mean, the film has to be made. One of the things. And, and, and are you surprised that he was erased from history? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, I'm, this, know, this would be. I mean, the history books are written by by the people who win. And obviously the, the, he was one man against the British Empire. He was not going to win that battle. So obviously um, the British wrote their own history in, in terms of who, who, he, who he was or who he was. And I just got, just, you know, we're not going to include him. So that's why up, up, until, up until now that uh, the polite Englishman, Alan Bennett, who, who, uh, who was a better face uh, and also 
Dabaloka was very embarrassing to the face of Buddhism as well. They want to present themselves to the West as as scholars and thinkers, uh, not you know crazy rebel rousing tramps, you know. So um, so Alan Bennett was was a, a good face. I I don't know his. I can't pronounce unfortunately his or his ordained name. But I'm, uh, do you you know the man I'm talking about? Don't you? I do, but I don't know his name. I one of the things that I wanted to ask you is that. Uh, sure. Raghu and I were discussing a book called The White Lama. Okay. I don't have it at hand, so I don't know the name of the, the person who's American. It, Theo's, Theo Bernard is his name. Theo right, Bernard. Right. Yeah. Theo Bernard, thank you. But one of the things about that book, uh, which is set, I think, in the 1920s, is that um, he had a great deal of difficulty in breaking through the Tibetan Buddhist hierarchies and getting <laughs> to lamas and to teachers in Tibet. Uh, it was an enormously difficult task because of the, you know, some of the, the, the um, constrictions, you know, sensible ones about the secrecy of some aspects of Tibetan Buddhism uh, that have, you know, would be misunderstood and have been misunderstood horrendously in the West, particularly Tantra and Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Uh, they didn't want people to just come in and become a, a monk, you know, and this, this white uh, American eventually penetrated through enormous determination and sincerity. Did, um, did he have the same kind of resistance in, Myanmar, in, in Burma at that time? Or was it sort of he just walked in and, and decided to do this? Because it seems unlikely to me that he would just, as much as they probably resented the British, it seems to me that they were at that time still rather naive about what the British would eventually achieve there. So... Do you know whether he was able to be assimilated by the Buddhist community or whether there was a struggle in there, like there was for Theo? I don't, I don't think there was. Um, I, 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 he, did, he did make the commitment of, of five years as an apprentice and obviously passed the test and, and, and the, he was rewarded with, with his ordin, ordination. So um, one can only guess if there was any in the the five years previous if he, if he if he i i don't i honestly can't answer that question i actually properly. like to ask raga this because he knows sure. more, more than i do about this raga what what when you were in 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 india and subsequent times that you've spoken to people like jack well, we've associated with teachers like jack cornfield uh was burma an, easy, an easier place to become a buddhist as a westerner than, say, Tibet or Nepal or Bhutan or Japan or China? Uh, no question. No question that uh, even back then, uh, you, you could not get... Uh, well, of course, with the Chinese after 1959, it was impossible. And it's only in the last, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years, that uh, there has been uh, tourist permits handed out and so on and so forth. Uh, but when we were there... I mean, all of our friends, uh, Theravadan uh, friends, who went over. I mean, Jack, of course, studied in in Thailand and uh, forest uh, with the forest monks, and and uh, both Joseph and Sharon uh, spent time uh, in Burma. Of course, in in that tradition, which goes back to Ubakin, and uh, I think it was far far easier. And far more, they were far more accepting of 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 these people. Uh, this particular guy that you're talking about, the White Lama, he was the third person in 1937. 
He was the third person that the Tibetans allowed into the country, never mind anything else. And he was uh, initiated into tantric practices by, uh, by one of the highest lamas in Tibet. Um, and when this, the interesting thing about this particular story, Ian, um, he, when he finally left Tibet, he went out with 50 mule loads of priceless essential Buddhist scriptures from government and monastery vaults. They trusted this guy to come back and share the, these teachings with the West. I mean, that's how high they held him. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with Evans Wentz, the translator of, uh, she brought back the Tibetan Book of the Dead and also uh, an incredible person. Uh, she was the first over there. Um, and what happened is um, he was lost and disappeared in, uh, and this is in 1947. They never found him and they never found any, I think some of this material did get through and is held in some, I'm not sure if it's a museum here in the United States, uh, but uh, it was an incredibly difficult journey um, and uh, certainly nothing like what it sounds like for um, uh, for this particular monk that whose story you're bringing to light, uh, being able to get over and uh, become ordained at that time, uh, just right late eighteen hundreds. So, um, it it there obviously was way more uh, acceptance uh, by the Theravadins than certainly by the Tibetans. And you know, Tibet was a very closed. Uh, the whole culture was very closed. Uh, um, and and it's been said before that the fact that the Chinese did what they what they have done as pernicious and uh, awful that it's been and the suffering that they have caused uh, is uh, is enormous and yet uh, what's happened in terms of the teachings being spread around the world has been miraculous really and has. Uh, uh, changed uh, culture. Uh, it really uh, allowed us to partake in something which has been so beneficial for Westerners. So, and in this case, uh, here's a whole different light with uh, a, ter- uh, a white Theravadan monk who mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, on a one-man crusade against the British Empire. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> uh, we we must. Uh, we're getting uh, you know to the close here of the podcast, sure. and before. We go anywhere. We need you to tell us uh, and and tell our listeners how we can all help and where this uh, fundraising campaign lies and how you can uh, tune into it, how we can. Just before I I mention that, I just think it's interesting to note that uh, Damaloka was also ordaining new monks from the West as well as new Burmese monks so he, he reached that kind of stature uh-huh. which oh. I think is in, just interesting to note yes um yeah okay I'm very I'm very bad at the at the self-promotion so I'll uh, just take a breath before oh, we're I do good so. well yeah Dave and I are the best at self-promotion <laughs> yeah I mean 
We we go on about uh, getting people to support the podcast through our Amazon link and donations and sure. selling T-shirts and all. And, uh, you know, then we go into a 20-minute soliloquy about it and get a lot of mail back. <laughs> what what the shit are you doing? Uh, and then we don't do it. And then we get we hear it from our guru, Duncan Trussell, who, uh, what are you talking about? This is important information needs to get out there, and you need support to do it. So you need support, Ian, to do, do this. So do. just do it. Okay. Um, the... the, the um the campaign is hosted on on a new uh, Buddhist crowdfund, crowdfunding platform uh, called Dana.io, um, D-A-N-A dot I-O. Um, so if you go there, forward slash the Dharma Bum, which is the name of, of the movie, um, it's, I mean, if you're familiar with Indiegogo, if you're familiar with Kickstarter, uh, the page will look very, very familiar. Um um, it's got all the kind of usual suspects in there um, of T-shirts, posters, stuff, yeah. um, CDs, soundtrack albums. Uh, all uh, the rewards really vary. You can be in the movie, we can, you know, as an animated character, etc. <laughs> um, but the, w- one of the cool things I think about it is that even if you just give one euro, you get a copy of the movie. I want everyone to see the movie. So, you know, a lot of crowdfunding campaigns kind of say for the minimum amount, amount you will say hello to you on Twitter or we'll follow you on Facebook. But no, if you, if you're giving money, obviously means you, you want to support the movie. So everyone, everyone gets a copy. So even for just one euro, which I think is what a dollar 25 cent keeps going that's, down. You're, though, you're, yeah. you're, 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 you're buying, you're buying, a, you're buying a copy of the movie. It's a pre-selling kind of thing. And uh, I, I I can't do it without without people like like yourselves, like minded people, like your listeners, to um, to just visit dana.io forward slash the Dharma Bum and please give what you can because I really want I don't want this guy to remain in obscurity. I really I don't think he should be you know available to the chosen few, the academia. I I want people to sit down on our couch and open up Netflix and there he is in the documentary section. I think this story, I think he's more relevant today than than he was back then. I think he's he's an inspiring character and I want I really want the entire world to know about him hmm. and, and benefit from 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 his words, from his wisdom, from the Dharma he spread, for his passion, for his conviction to standing up to what he believed in. I mean he's he's up there with Martin Luther King, he's up there with Lenny Bruce. He's 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 an important important figure and I think we could all learn from his story. So please help me make the movie. And uh, yeah. We can yeah. learn from your from your promotion style. Too. <laughs> yeah, that was terrific, Ian. Yeah, man. Wow. Absolutely, well, it's terrific because there. because it's uh, yeah, just true to your heart. And mm. doing this uh, is obviously would be a fulfilling mission for you. But at the same yeah. time, it's an offering and a sharing uh, with uh, with everybody who is uh, uh, interested in consciousness. So you can just put it at the most basic level. Here is somebody who was uh, obviously spent real time imbuing himself uh, in on the path, uh, the Theravadan path in this case, uh, Buddhism, and mm-hmm. to to transform himself from the alcoholic bum that he was to a Dharma yeah. bum, and in that transformation, he not only was working on his own behalf, but he was working. He was thinking. Of, of, uh, he was thinking of everybody. He was thinking of the people of of oppressed people, 
who uh, were at the mercy of the British colonization, which was so widespread at the time. Of course, we're very familiar with what they did in India because we've spent so much time there. And but uh, this happened all through that, although uh, the Asia, and uh, for him to stand up like this, yet still be. Uh, completely connected to the roots of Buddhism for his uh, for his own uh, salvation, uh, shall we say, uh, is an important teaching uh, for for yes. everybody. That you we can care about what's going on in the world, what's going on in uh, culture, politics, uh, and uh, the disparities which today are huge. And he could easily be speaking to the, the disparity uh, that's going on in the West between the 1% and the rest. And, yeah. and, and so this is an inspiration for people and well worth documenting as you want to do. So we are uh, happy to have you on, aboard here to, uh, to share what you want to do. And, and uh, we really, I, th I don't think there'll be any question that you'll get the support that you need. Ian. I'm, I'm so grateful that you ha you guys had me on your show to to help me spread spread the news of this guy. I'm Absolutely. very very grateful. For yeah, that. I love the and the Dharma bum. Of course, we Dave and I, uh, well, and you do too. The Dharma bums, you know, from the fifties. Yeah. all of our friends, how, yeah, uh, I, Kerouac, I, uh, Ginsburg, and and uh, hopefully I won't get into trouble with the Kerouac estate for for borrowing uh, the nah, name. Nah, <laughs> you can't. They can't do it, and they'd be. Well, who knows what they'd be or not be, but I, th I would <laughs> I think, say I they'd think have Jack to. Jack would have been quite happy about yeah, this. Yeah, he would have been. Yeah, it's... absolutely, absolutely. And it's the the connectivity there is probably something to mention in in the movie as well. Sure. Uh, so thank you so much for being with us, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And, and can I just say that mm -hmm. I, I know a lot of people say that they they discover you through Duncan Trussell. Yeah, but I, I discovered Duncan Thrussell through you guys. So. Oh, there you go. Okay, so we'll have to you. tell Duncan that. Yeah. <laughs> and Duncan, uh, if you're listening, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell him. That's All good. right, this is Mind Rolling Podcast, and again, thank you, Ian, and uh, everybody. We'll see you next week. <laughs>